It was almost midnight on February 1, 1959, as 23-year-old Igor Dyatlov crawled through the snow. Winter was brutal in Siberia, and the wind slashed at his bloody face, dislodging the icicles that formed around his eyes. His shoeless feet were numb and struggled to find a grip on the mountain slope. The 70-mile-an-hour winds made the temperature feel much colder than it was. Igor knew he only had a few minutes to find shelter before hypothermia would shut his body down. He climbed down the steep incline, squinting in the darkness for his tent. He shouted into the wind for his friends. If they heard him, though, he never knew. They might have only been a few feet away, but the torrent of wind and snow swallowed his voice whole. Igor gave one last heave and his hand closed around something, a tree branch. With his last bit of strength, he turned onto his back. He felt his legs go numb and then his arms. As he stared into the vast emptiness, his final thoughts were of his best friend, Zina. She was somewhere on the slope with him. He wanted to find her and say how much he loved her. But the wind kicked up, taking any chance he had to tell her with it into the dark, desolate mountains. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Dyatlov Pass incident. In winter 1959, nine Soviet mountaineers went missing in an extremely remote part of Siberia. After an intensive search, their bodies were found far from their tent. Most were shoeless. Some were only in their underwear. But what confounded investigators most were the severe injuries found on several of the hikers. And even stranger, some of their clothes were radioactive. In this episode, we'll trace the events leading up to the tragedy and the mysterious circumstances surrounding their deaths. We'll examine the evidence as it's uncovered, as well as the official explanation finally issued by the Soviet Union. Next time, we'll tackle a few of the conspiracy theories related to the event, like that UFOs might have been involved in the incident, or that the hikers may have been murdered. And finally, we'll investigate the possibility that their deaths were part of a government cover-up after a secret military weapons test went terribly wrong. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. 
So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Dyatlov Pass incident is one of Russia's most enduring mysteries. At least a dozen books have been written on the subject by journalists, scientists, and believers in the occult. However, the fateful 1959 expedition to Siberia in northern Russia started out as a pretty ordinary holiday excursion, the Soviet equivalent of spring break. Most people wouldn't choose the frigid Siberian mountains for a vacation, but a group of intrepid college students found them exhilarating. At the time, Soviet citizens were not allowed to travel outside the country except under special circumstances. With international trips out of the question, the students had to make do with local destinations. Fortunately, they went to school at the Ural Polytechnic Institute, also known as UPI. The school was located in the city of Sverdlovsk, modern-day Yekaterinburg. UPI was only a stone's throw away from the Ural Mountains. The vast range stretches north to south through western Russia and is pocketed with hundreds of thousands of square miles of untouched wilderness. Engineering student Igor Dyatlov became the expedition's leader. He was everything you'd want in a guide, smart, resourceful, and experienced. As a child, Igor built radio receivers and telescopes from scratch. In 1951, at the age of 15, his older brother introduced him to hiking, and he hadn't stopped since. By 1959, he'd been on at least 10 major hikes and led six of them. Igor had long been fascinated with the idea of a trek through a particular mountain in the Urals called Mount Otorton. The indigenous Manzi peoples reportedly call it Windy Mountain. 
By the summer of 1958, Igor knew he wanted to lead the first-ever winter expedition up Mount Ortorten. Igor knew he was in for a challenge. Mount Ortorten was considered a grade three hike, the highest difficulty. Furthermore, once he was on the mountain, he'd be on his own. But the isolation was as thrilling as it was daunting. For Igor to be out in the wild, man against nature, was a chance to prove his fortitude. Luckily, Igor found other students who felt the same way. Joining the trek were the tomboyish Zina, Georgi the Jester, and Yuri Yudin, who suffered from various health problems, including chronic back pain. There were also five other students and recent graduates who'd heard about Igor's plan from friends. The expedition fell under the oversight of the UPI Sports Club, as well as the Sverdlovsk city government. On January 8, 1959, they approved Igor's proposed route. From what we know, Igor was supposed to deliver a copy of this route to the sports club, as well as the routing commission, which kept track of hikers in the area. But for whatever reason, he failed to do so. The mistake went unnoticed. So on the morning of January 23rd, the hikers gathered and ran through their packing checklists. They set aside packages of food and checked their camping gear for malfunctions. Several hours later, the group was ready. They set off for the train station, lurching under the weight of their enormous packs and nearly missed the train, sprinting to catch it before it left. On board, they rendezvoused with a mustachioed veteran named Sasha, a late addition who'd asked to join Igor. At 37, he was much older than the rest of the hikers and more experienced. It took some time for the students to warm to Sasha. He was a strong presence, thanks to his mysterious tattoos from his time fighting the Nazis in World War II. But they had a long journey ahead, and soon enough, they were all singing Russian folk songs together. A couple days later, they arrived at Vijay on the edge of the Siberian wilderness. It was a small logging village built by prison labor, and some of the residents were former inmates. Vijay was part of an enormous Siberian prison system called the Gulag, where Joseph Stalin sent millions of criminals, prisoners of war, and political dissidents during his long reign. The horrendous conditions there meant that even a prison sentence of three years could be fatal. In the camps outside of Vijay, able-bodied prisoners performed grueling work, while others dropped dead from exhaustion, malnourishment, and hypothermia. Their slave labor provided the rest of the USSR with a seemingly unlimited supply of cheap lumber. If Igor's group knew about the history of the region, they didn't show it. To them, all that mattered was that Vijay had hot food, clean beds, and a cinema. The next morning, January 26th, Igor met with a forest officer who examined the map of their route up Mount Otorten. But when he saw where they planned to go, the officer balked. He warned them that the trip was too dangerous to attempt in winter. On top of the sub-freezing temperatures, the winds on Otorten could get strong enough to blow a person away. Plus, there were hidden sinkholes and ravines that the hikers might accidentally fall into. Igor didn't flinch at the apparent recipe for disaster. It's possible he even took the warning as a challenge. Nothing gave him a greater thrill than facing and overcoming danger. 
He thanked the officer and returned to his comrades unfazed. The Dyatlov group sent one last note to their families before leaving civilization behind. Igor sent a postcard to his father, saying they were on schedule and he should be back in two or three weeks, by February 15th at the latest. The group took a few photos to commemorate the occasion before gathering their belongings and hitching a ride north on the back of a logging truck. The frigid, single-digit wind bit into their faces and snaked through the fabric of their clothes. The bumpy ride aggravated Yuri's sciatica, a nerve condition that caused shooting pains in his back and legs. But he brushed off any concerns about his fitness. Yuri was hopeful that it would go away after a good night's rest. The Dyatlov party arrived that afternoon, January 26th, at the remote Sector 41 logging camp. They were a bit wind-burned and tired, but their spirits lifted with the generous treatment they received. The 50 or so lumberjacks who lived in the camp were unused to visitors, so what little they had, they shared. The woodcutters set up the weary hikers in their dormitory and baked fresh bread for dinner. The room was damp and cold, but at least it was shelter. Yet when Yuri awoke on January 27th, the pain in his legs had gotten worse. He considered turning back, but dreaded giving up. And as he wrestled with the decision, a stranger arrived in town. The visitor was a former prisoner named Stanislav Veliki Avichus. Having heard about the hiker's mission, he offered to escort them north to an abandoned settlement where they might find their next shelter. He had a sleigh which could carry their supplies and make the next leg of their trip easier. The hikers didn't have any qualms about using a convicted felon as a guide. The loggers trusted Stanislav, and no one could deny that Yuri needed to rest his back. That evening, Stanislav led the group on a 15-mile moonlit trek up the frozen Lozva River. According to Yuri, the ice was thin. He was terrified of it breaking beneath their feet and the frigid water swallowing them up. Fortunately, the ice held. Around 10 p.m., the hikers saw moonlight reflecting off the roofs of snow-capped buildings. In his diary, Yuri recalled the camp's appearance how he slid on skis past rusty vehicles, crumbling warehouses, and shattered windows. Finally, they found the one house that still had a working stove and intact windows. Whatever relief finding shelter for the night provided, by the next morning, Yuri realized he couldn't go on. The previous day's exertion was simply too much for his back and legs. He could barely get out of bed, and if his condition worsened on the mountain, his friends would have to carry him back. Yuri bade farewell to his friends. Since he would be trekking back toward civilization, Igor asked Yuri to let people know they might be a couple days late getting back. As the group left, Yuri watched his friends clip into their skis and prepare for the adventure of a lifetime. The glance he threw over his shoulder as they departed was the last time he'd see them alive. Coming up, the final days of the Dyatlov Nine. This is Storybooth Daily. Tune into this new podcast for your daily fix of real life stories from real people around the world. 
We've received thousands of stories that we want to share with you, from talking about being ghosted or realizing that being popular isn't all that great sometimes. No topic is off the table. This is a podcast that's not only for you, but by you. Story Booth Daily premieres November 8th, so be sure to check us out Monday through Friday. Story Booth Daily is a wheelhouse and Spotify original from Parcast. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On the morning of January 28, 1959, 21-year-old Yuri Yudin waved goodbye to his friends and began an arduous 15-mile journey back to civilization. The remaining nine hikers, led by their experienced guide Igor Dyatlov, continued north towards Mount Otorton. What happened after that has been reconstructed from their diaries and photographs. Once the group left the abandoned settlement, they continued to follow the Lazva River, carving a path through the thick snow one step at a time. The trek was exhausting. Every few minutes, ice froze on their skis and they had to stop to remove it. Georgi, ever the artist, took these opportunities to make sketches of the landmarks they'd passed. Understandably, the backbreaking exertion inflamed tensions. When it came time to pitch camp at 5.30, everyone was irritable. According to Zina's diary, Igor was especially rude. Admittedly, his grumpy mood may have had something to do with her. The whole trip, Igor had apparently been trying to get Zina's attention. He'd sat with her and discussed love and romance, but hadn't shared his own feelings towards her. Zina had reason to be oblivious to his advances. Shortly before the expedition, she and her boyfriend, Yuri Doroshenko, broke up. Unfortunately, he was also one of the other hikers. Clearly, the trip was an emotional strain on both of them. On January 26th, Yuri offered to let her borrow his mittens, and even though her fingers were numb, Zina had to be persuaded by her friends to accept the gesture from her ex. Relationship drama aside, other conflicts soon took precedent, like sleeping arrangements. Apparently, the stove that Igor constructed was blazing hot. Despite the freezing temperatures outside, no one wanted to sleep next to it. The group took a vote and chose Georgi to be closest. Yet the normally affable musician exploded with rage. Perhaps exhausted and frustrated, he spat curses at the others, accusing them of betrayal. The next day, January 29th, went a bit smoother. The wind was calm, and the temperature was a balmy 8 degrees Fahrenheit. They came upon trees marked by Manzi hunters. The Manzi are an indigenous nation of hunters native to Siberia. Although their history goes back centuries, by 1959, only a few thousand remained. The hikers' diaries suggest that the trail was freshly carved by a Manzi sled towed by reindeer. It's unclear exactly why, but it appears that Igor chose to follow the Manzi path rather than his own map. 
It's possible he thought a local might know an easier approach to Mount Otorton, or perhaps he was simply lost. Nevertheless, the group accepted his decision. A day later, their progress slowed again. Parts of the river weren't frozen, so they had to take the rougher route over land. The snow was deep, chest high in some places. As the sun set, the temperature dropped to minus 15 degrees Fahrenheit. The last record in the group diary was written by Igor the following afternoon, January 31st, around 4 p.m. He noted that the weather had worsened slightly and he'd lost sight of the Manzi tracks. In four feet of snow, they could only move at a crawl and sunset was only an hour away. By now, the Dyatlov group was far off course. Rather than camping on Mount Otorton, their new position was at the base of a smaller mountain called Kolet Siakl. In the Manzi tongue, Kolet Siakl can be translated to Dead Mountain. They passed the tree line and emerged onto a large, snow-covered hill. They looked for a place to pitch their tent, then snapped a few photos before settling in for the night in the shadow of Dead Mountain. On February 12th, Igor was supposed to send a telegram to the university confirming that he'd made it back to Vijay. None arrived. After another five days passed with no word, by the 17th, director Lev Gordo of UPI's sports club realized he had to do something. He made calls to other clubs and airfields in the hopes of organizing a search. And on February 19th, it seems that politically connected parents joined the outreach effort, which helped get local authorities on board. The UPI formed several search parties and put two military commanders in charge. Dozens of student hikers joined in the search. They packed their bags and hopped on a train to Vijay. On the 20th, Yuri Yudin returned to the city of Sverdlovsk, where his journey had begun nearly a month before. Upon his arrival, Yuri was shocked to learn about his friend's disappearances. He later said those first days back in town were a blur, how it was a struggle to accept something fatal might have happened to the group. Yuri's return sparked a flurry of questions, but he didn't have much information to share. He'd been out of contact almost as long as they had. However, the searchers had plenty of local help. Manzi hunters acted as guides and had dogs that could sniff for cadavers. The airport lent planes and helicopters. A group of prison guards even joined as well. One of the search parties was led by Boris Slobzov, an experienced hiker who happened to be Igor Dyatlov's close friend. A helicopter dropped his team off near Mount Otorton, and they searched for tracks. On February 25th, almost one month after Yuri's departure from the group, Boris discovered ski tracks they believe belonged to Igor and his friends. When they returned the next day, they trudged through dense snow for hours following the marks. And then they saw it, a canvas tent half buried in the snow. The rescuers forgot their exhaustion and raced up the slope. They saw a flashlight resting on top of the tent and an ice axe buried in the snow. Boris grabbed the ice axe and slashed the canvas open, but the inside was empty. There was no sign of the hikers. 
He saw the group's diaries, piles of clothes, and crumpled up blankets. It looked as if he'd just missed them by minutes. Boris experienced a growing sense of unease. Among the clothes were fur caps and jackets. Then he felt his foot catch on something and looked down. It was a boot. He realized he was surrounded by boots. That meant the hikers were barefoot. The next day, February 27th, several search parties descended on the mountain and the Dyatlov campsite, fanning out and looking for clues. Although it was difficult to spot footprints next to the tent, one observer discovered snow tracks about 20 yards away, leading down the slope. The footprints were clearly human and seemed to represent all nine hikers. After a while, they disappeared again into a patch of fresh snow. Almost a mile away, two searchers were scouting for a campsite of their own. It was only noon, and once they found their ideal spot, they could get back to the hunt. That's when they saw what looked like the remains of a fire pit. At first, they thought it was made by one of the Manzi hunters. But if that were the case, then there would be reindeer tracks nearby. Perhaps the fire was made by the Dyatlov group. They approached the pit cautiously, scanning the ground for clues. Then, one of the men saw a leg poking out of the snow. He and his compatriot ran back up the slope to get help. More people returned with them and cleared snow off of the body. It was Georgi, the musician. The diggers quickly discovered another corpse next to him, lying face down atop a pile of broken branches. Yuri Doroshenko. Zina's ex-boyfriend. Though the discovery was tragic, the search teams were prepared to find the worst. They knew it was likely that the other hikers hadn't survived. But as they scooped up handfuls of snow, their sadness turned to bewilderment. Georgi was nearly naked. At least by Siberian standards. He had on a long-sleeved shirt, swim trunks, and a single torn sock. And Yuri Doroshenko wasn't much better off. They found him in short sleeves, pants, and a vest. He had socks, but no shoes. The searchers had no explanation for what they found. Somehow, these two men walked a mile from their tent barefoot in several feet of snow, and there was still no sign of the other seven hikers. The search teams wondered if the other Dyatlov 9 suffered the same fate, or possibly something worse. Coming up, the rest of the hikers are found, and some of them are radioactive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And now back to the story. On February 27, 1959, a search party discovered the bodies of Yuri Doroshenko and Georgi about a mile from their campsite. The hikers were barefoot, half-naked, and frozen solid. 
What little clothes they had were shredded and partially burned. The other search parties spread out from the site of the bodies. Some 300 yards away, one of the searchers zeroed in on a patch of snow by a cedar tree. The team uncovered a body that clutched at the cedar tree as if holding on for dear life. It was Igor Dyatlov. Soon after, the searchers found Zina's body pointed in the direction of the tent. Although she was also shoeless, she was still more properly dressed than the others. She wore three pairs of socks and two sweaters, which may have been taken off Yuri Doroshenko's or Georgi's body. With almost half of the party identified, the question turned to solving what exactly happened to the hikers. The job was handed to a prosecutor named Lev Ivanov. The search teams had likely assumed that the deaths were an accident, but Ivanov wasn't so sure. So when he traveled to the operation's makeshift headquarters at the local airport, he brought some forensics experts with him. The autopsies revealed that all four victims died of hypothermia. This was expected given how they were found, but there were a few surprises. In addition to various cuts and scrapes, Igor's hand was bruised around the knuckles as if he'd been in a fistfight. And Yuri Doroshenko had a foamy gray discharge around his mouth. There's been a lot of speculation about this, but one theory is that it resulted from his chest being crushed by something very heavy. Another unusual observation was that Georgi and Doroshenko had burns on their feet, hands, and scalps. The only logical explanation was that they had put their limbs into the fire to stay warm. In addition, all of the victim's skin had a pale brown tint, as if they were suntanned. Ivanov brought Yuri Yudin into the morgue to identify the bodies and their belongings. The detective also made a list of the people the hikers had spoken to along the way and ordered their tent to be examined. A forensic scientist discovered that, in addition to the cuts Boris made to enter the tent, there were several large gashes on the canvas. Upon close examination, it appeared the tears were caused by a sharp knife from the inside. On March 5th, Six days after the first four bodies were found, a search team located the corpse of Rustik Slobodian, one of the graduates who joined the team. He wore a single boot and two pairs of pants. His autopsy revealed bruising on his knuckles, just like Igor. He also had a skull fracture that may have been caused by a blunt object. Unlike the previous four hikers, it appeared as if Rustik had died a violent death. Perhaps he fought Igor and was knocked unconscious. However, there was no motive to speak of. Rustik was one of the most well-liked members of the group. According to the diaries, he never clashed with anyone. By now, it was clear that the last four hikers were probably dead. Even though the search continued, the Sverdlovsk city government moved to form an independent commission to investigate what happened on the mountain. The commission officially concluded that the Dyatlov group was hit by a windstorm. The hikers fled their tent in a panic and froze to death before they could find their way back. It was a tragedy, but there were still parties to hold accountable. 
The government blamed the UPI Sports Club, the Rooting Commission, and university leadership for failing to properly oversee the expedition. Several people, including the university director, were fired or reprimanded. Meanwhile, the search for the remaining four hikers dried up. Weeks passed without any trace of them. The student volunteers were assisted by military rescuers. Day after day, they probed the snow with metal rods, hoping for a lucky break. The breakthrough came on May 5th, three months after Igor and his friends perished. At 9.30 a.m., a team uncovered a burnt, shredded pant leg near a creek at the bottom of a gully. They excavated the snow from the area and found more clothes. By that evening, they reached the bottom of the ditch, where Leuda, the youngest hiker, lay prostrate over the stream. The old veteran Sasha was nearby, alongside the final two members of the group, Kolya and Alexander. After snapping a few photos, the investigators packed the decomposing bodies into sleeping bags and sent them off for examination. On May 9th, four days after the final bodies were found, Detective Ivanov supervised the final autopsies. From the outside, their bodies had only minor bruising. All of them had severe internal injuries. Kolya had a serious skull fracture. Alexander's neck was deformed. Sasha died from internal bleeding after something crushed his chest, breaking several ribs. Liuta's official cause of death was a hemorrhage, and her situation was similar to Sasha's. Her rib cage was shattered on both sides by the impact of a solid object with tremendous force. In addition to Liuta's injuries, the coroner noted her eyes and tongue were missing. All four deaths were undeniably violent. Detective Ivanov's first guess was that they had slipped and fallen onto rocks. But they probably would have had to plunge 60 feet to cause that much damage, and the ravine they were found in was only nine feet deep. Ivanov also observed that there were no large stones near the bodies to justify how the traumas occurred. Furthermore, the lack of external lacerations was puzzling. Presumably, falling onto jagged rocks would rip holes in their skin. To the detective, nothing about this case made sense. Nine dead hikers, barefoot in the Siberian wilderness, with inexplicable injuries. So nine days after the hiker's final autopsy, Ivanov made a surprising choice. He sent some of the clothes to a radiation specialist in Sverdlovsk. It's hard to say why. None of the diary entries mentioned hikers feeling nauseous, dizzy, or feverish, classical signs of radiation poisoning. They weren't anywhere near a nuclear power plant, but Ivanov had noticed a purplish dye on some of the clothing and for some reason connected that to radiation. His instinct was right. Of the nine garments Ivanov sent for testing, three of them tested positive for high levels of radiation. The bodies themselves were not radioactive, but their clothing certainly was. Some people believe that the contamination was nothing unusual. Their clothes could have been made near one of the Soviet Union's nuclear test sites and had been bought by one of the hikers. But others feared something more sinister was at play, 
especially since Soviet officials were surprisingly uninterested in the truth. The Sverdlovsk government commission swiftly declared the deaths a natural disaster and fired those supposedly responsible. The authorities wanted to move on and forget. On May 28, 1959, possibly at the urging of his superiors, Detective Ivanov closed the case after four months of investigation. The official police file was sealed, and Ivanov released a report supporting the claims of the Sverdlovsk Commission. According to the government, Igor and his comrades died because of a windstorm. The national statement made no mention about the strange injuries or the radioactive clothing. The cause of death was, quote, an overwhelming force which was beyond the hikers to overcome. For those that do know what Ivanov found, though, the official story remains full of holes. With so many unanswered questions, it's no surprise that the mystery of Dyatlov Pass has spawned a wave of conspiracy theories. We couldn't possibly list them all, but next episode, we'll turn our attention to three of the biggest. Conspiracy theory number one. The Dyatlov Pass incident involved UFOs. Many people noticed lights in the sky around the time the hikers went missing. Conspiracy theory number two. The hiking party was murdered, either by escaped prisoners, Manzi hunters, or the CIA. Then, their deaths were covered up to avoid national embarrassment. And conspiracy theory number three. The deaths were accidental casualties due to a secret Soviet military weapons test. Afterwards, their bodies were staged to make it look like they died of natural causes. Some authors have described their research into Dyatlov Pass like falling down a rabbit hole. The more you uncover, the less any of it makes sense. It remains one of the great puzzles from the Cold War era, and it's doubtful that anyone will make all the pieces fit. But we're sure going to try. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with part two of Dyatlov Pass. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kotovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Ben Hanani and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Anya Barely, and research by Coleman Gray. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. This is Story Booth Daily. Tune into this new podcast for your daily fix of real-life stories from people around the world. Story Booth Daily premieres Monday, November 8th on Spotify. Story Booth Daily is a wheelhouse and Spotify original from ParCast.